Hello, and welcome to another episode of the TPI podcast, To Think Minimum. Today, we're going to continue our conversation with a special guest, Professor Tom Hazlett. Professor Hazlett holds the H.H. Macaulay Endowed Chair in Economics at Clemson University. Tom will talk about his book, The Political Spectrum, The Tumultuous Liberation of Wireless Technology, From Herbert Hoover to the Smartphone, published by Yale University Press. The professor is also in town for a book talk at the Cato Institute with comments from FCC Chairman Ajit Pai. And it should be mentioned that TPI's fellow Sarah O oh was a former student, and so she and Professor Hazlett enjoyed getting caught up. We are also joined today by TPI's senior fellow and president, Scott Walston, who will also join the conversation on all things political spectrum. So without further ado, I'll hand it over to the three experts in the room and let them take it away. Thanks, Chris. So I'd like to start us off today by saying that I'm sitting here with my former boss and my current boss, so I better have my Spectrum notes ready. I'm so glad to welcome Professor Hazlett to the podcast. I was a law student of his about 12 years ago in his course on economics for lawyers at Scalia Law School at George Mason. I worked for the Information Economy Project for a few years, writing and organizing conferences before studying economics and coming here to TPI. And I wouldn't be an economist without Professor Hazlett's influence. Now, on to the show. Tom, would you mind sharing some of your process in writing the political spectrum? Have you been collecting spectrum notes for decades in your (laughs) desk drawer? You're a leading scholar in spectrum property rights. What inspired you to write this particular book? So thank you, Sarah, and uh, it is a delight to see you producing wonderful academic work and popular articles and off to a, just a great career in the economics and public policy realm, and particularly in the tech field. And uh, as I look back on a more than 30-year career in academia, I think about my accomplishments. That leads me to take credit for everything you do. <laughs> it's wonderful to see your trajectory, and uh, I'm sure we haven't seen it hit the apex yet. The uh, process is interesting. Uh, People ask me, uh, how long have you been writing this book? And my standard answer is that I have been writing the book since I was five. There is a long time of research sometimes. It uh, seems to go faster than you you might expect. And uh, you look back and all of a sudden, uh, you've got uh, some decades of research that really do need to put together into a story. And there's a great story about how the U.S. and other countries regulate and allocate radio spectrum. And the wireless sector, which is of great importance to the economy today and of increasing importance to all of society, has very little understanding, general understanding, of course, of how uh, the process of regulation works and how the rules to this maybe most valuable natural resource of the 21st century, radio spectrum, are created, defined, and distributed. Being an economist who has looked at this marketplace and looked at the regulatory structures for some time, I thought, I really need to write the book. And so, you know, that process at some point means you're just going to sit down and start writing a book. And I think that really took place in early 2013. And there was a book by early 2014. And then there was a, a submission to uh, academic presses and, and others and, and an acceptance of a book that was about 195,000 words. And the Yale University Press says we'd, we'd be delighted to publish the best 120,000 words. So then you have another long editing process and the book comes out in 2017. How did they decide which words were the 120,000 best? <laughs> well, there were, two, there were two complete and thorough edits by a Yale editor who did a very, very nice job, uh, William Fruck. And I, of course, had to come in right behind them and, and uh, do my revisions. And, and uh, the, the book was made better. Of course, you're, it's always painful to leave anything on the cutting room floor, so to speak. But uh, people don't want to 
read 500 pages or 700 pages. Uh, if you can talk them into reading 300 pages, you're lucky. And this has got a, a lot of in, in the book. There's there's history, particularly the Federal Communications Commission. There's there are episodes of regulatory failure and regulatory success, and a comparison. And I'm trying to describe a historical arc and the changing, in fact, the, the liberation of wireless technology over time. So there's economics in there. There's technology. There's certainly history and political science, or if you will, public choice. So you said you've been you've been writing this book since since you were five. And I mean, you can see a lot of your research in here. I can read parts of it and think back to you know your paper from this time, that time. When you put it all together, did you learn something different than came from any one of your paper? I mean, that that you hadn't really realized until you put it all together. I don't think there was a single epiphany that I can uh, give you right off the, the top of my head. But there's no question that writing forces you to think and rethink and understand in a way that you never did before. It's like when they say, if you want to learn something, go teach it. Well, writing is teaching. You're putting you know, words on paper or on a screen that are going to try to explain something to somebody else. You are teaching them what you think you know. And of course, that forces you to test what you know or you think you know. And um, of course, I understand things in a different way now. And in fact, in the writing process, if you have lots of articles, and thank you for you know noticing that, that there is research that forms the, gen- the basis of the book, you cannot just take those articles and basically rewrite them and put them together. That's not the way this works. And that's why at some point you have to sit down and say, I'm going to write a book. And you have to start over. You have to write the story yourself because it forces you to relearn your own story and to make it so that it, it fits. And of course, you have to think about this. And so I think that just in, in general, the, the issue that's interesting is how did the liberalization come about? We started in such a captured and conservative fashion of the 1927 Radio Act. It's clear that the interest groups, the incumbent radio broadcasters and policymakers that wanted influence over the content that was broadcast, came together to restrict entry into a market, create rents, and then distribute those rents in a very standard way that we know in economics happens in lots of places. Now, that system really does a lot of violence to innovation, competition, and consumer welfare over the ensuing decades. And economists, you know, when they come along and start paying attention to this in the 1950s with Ronald Coase, are saying, wow, this is really inefficient, or we think it could be done much better. Let's try more competition. Let's introduce market forces. Well, yeah, it seemed like a good idea to a few people at the time, but how did it come about that some of those ideas eventually were tried? Of course, at the first round, uh, Coase and the economic ideas were vilified, and the established wisdom was very strong and resistant to change. In writing the story where we end up where we are now, where we've seen some really successful deregulation and unleashing of incredible technologies, we have to ask the question, how did that happen? And how can it happen again? Because still, as we sit here today, of course, most spectrum, the great majority, is still squirreled away in these old allocations created by now dead regulators that have little or nothing to do with the modern world and, in fact, are hostile to progress. So how do we recreate those forces and that uh, very progressive structure that actually moves the old spectrum system into the new world. So tell us a little bit more about how that actually happened. I mean, were these, you, you mentioned Coase, who was one of the first to say what we were doing was stupid and we should use something more like auctions. Is this a story of great people who were able to push an agenda? Is it a story of potential entrants that became powerful enough to demand changes? Was it that allowed it to change? Yeah, so that's, of course, a, a great question and great minds grapple with it, not just in radio spectrum, but in, in terms of the course of history. And, you know, Deidre McCloskey, mm-hmm. who, you know, talked 
talks about how economists are too focused on incentives and institutions, and they don't give enough play to culture and, and ideas. And I appreciate that debate, and I, I kind of like McCloskey's critique, but it's a hard answer in terms of really narrowing it down. It, it is clear that the inefficiencies of the old system and the suppression of innovation, in a certain sense, finally got to be too much. And we broke through in, in ways that were important. I, I've written previously and, and tried to extend the book to thinking that the old broadcasting system was fairly easy for the policymakers to jump on and regulate. And it was easy because they knew, as uh, you know, Herbert Hoover at the Department of Commerce and members of the House and, and Senate in the United States, and this happens in, in roughly the same way with different institutions in other countries, these policymakers wanted to control the debate and the influence of the new media. Of course, the first companies that got involved and have broadcasting licenses, they wanted to restrict entry into the market. So it's it's it, that public choice story, the capture that takes place early on, the restrictions, they're fairly straightforward to explain. What is harder is how that drifts away. I claim that broadcasting is easy as it was because it was a technology where there's a transmitter put in one spot and you blast out, you know, lots of uh, energy to as many, as far as you can go. You have 500 of those licenses nationwide. How simple that is to regulate and how clear an advantage for the policymakers as compared to something like years later, cellular, where you have thousands, tens of thousands of base stations. You've got much more complicated technological decisions. You certainly have a coordination between receivers, mobile receivers and base stations. And sort of the networking function is hugely complicated relative to the old system. And it's a common carrier service. The, there, there's no real political angle to jumping into cellular. You're not influencing content. You're not doing anything directly to influence elections. Now, of course, a generation later, we see, as we sit here in 2018, well, Facebook, social media, all the discussion today about the 2016 election and some of the influence there. In the long run, some of these things break through. But as decisions are being made in the 70s and 80s about what to do about the emerging medium, you don't have the same political interest. And you do have a much heavier lift for regulators. Just license Licensing the, the over 1,000 cellular licenses turned out to be so much of a headache that the regulatory establishment did do something that was a step away from the old system. And as crazy as it sounds, it was a step in the right direction. It was lotteries for issuing the licenses. It was just too much of a paperwork burden to do the old beauty contest method to give out these 1,468 cellular licenses in the 80s. And so we actually went to a uh, less political, even if, if foolish system, uh, an auction would have been so much more efficient and and um, we ended up going that way a well, decade later. It's only more efficient if the secondary markets aren't working, which at the time weren't as well developed, right? But no, th there's also there's also the fact that you are squandering. There are rents that are squandered when you have this setup. I mean, the way we did the lottery, we had the fiction that every entrant to the lottery had to be a real phone company, and that was that was overcome through paperwork and all it's kinds of. Oh yes, we're a fiction. phone company yeah. because we got Nortel to certify in these papers that we will be. But anyway, there was paperwork, there was rent seeking, there, there were transaction costs and the reassignments. And at the end, of course, the, the revenue is left on the table and, and it's and it's efficient. If, the, if they're pure rents, it's efficient for the government to go ahead and sell the license, take the rents. And, and uh, for that portion of uh, public spending, you have an efficiency over a tax, a tax that, that has some inefficiencies associated with it. You save it sort of a public finance dividend. So there really are efficiency savings to, to what, what we later went to in terms of auctions and, and sales of the licenses. But what I'm saying is, is that how we got to the more liberal position in the emerging mobile market in particular, I think was driven by the lack of political incentive for the regulators to block 
and control on the one side, and then the really the much higher level of complexity and literally administrative expense. I mean, you go back to the 70s and 80s, and you will see this, the FCC arguing that it just, as an administrative matter, is going to have a terrible time doing hearings for 1,468 cellular licenses. And of course, they would have a terrible time. It would, it, it would be a logjam for years. And the way that worked out is that they did get congressional authority to do lotteries, and then they used that authority, and that cleared the logjam still took much too long. It took 84 to 89 to get those that big bundle of licenses yeah, out. But it could have been complexity on its own that um, caused the change to happen. Japan still doesn't do auctions, right? They still use the same old beauty contest approach. And they, I mean, maybe I'm sure there are lots of efficiencies there, but nobody's ever said their cellular networks aren't very good. Well, yeah, I don't say it's just the complexity issue. I think it's also the political. It's a, sort of the demand for regulation by the policymakers and then the cost of regulation to the policy you know, the policy authority. But auctions are basically the tip of the iceberg on liberalization. That's, and people talk about it, Coase talked about it, but the real liberalization, without any question, is relaxing the rules for those who have rights to use spectrum. Delegating authority, if you will, from the regulatory agency to the market and letting the forces of competition, including, of course, most importantly, customer feedback, govern the public interest. Now, that was a proposal from 1951 by a law student at the University Chicago named Leo Herzl, who said at the time, yeah, the auction of licenses is important. But the real thing is just making sure that these rights are broad, liberal, flexible use spectrum rights so that you can really have allocation decisions where to get airwaves that are in low value uses moved over into high value uses. That needs to be in the market and subject to competition, not to regulatory fiat. And so that's in Japan, in China, in Nigeria, in the United States. That's the change over the last 30 years it's been phenomenally successful. There are other parts to it. Auctions are one. Some some countries haven't gone as far on that as the U.S., but I think there are over 50 countries that use auctions now. And certainly another big chunk, and certainly more important than auctions, are just the idea of competition. There can be parallel networks authorized by rival licenses, and that's essentially every, every country in the world, with the exception of North Korea. So it's sort of four things, right? One is recognizing that it's not a natural monopoly and you should have competing networks. The second is that the licenses need to allow for flexible use. The third is that they should be freely tradable. And then the fourth, auctions are a complement to all of those. So that's a way to start the initial allocation. Absolutely. You know, one of the points of my book is we haven't taken the extra mile to liberalize the actual underlying allocation process. We still use the same old regulatory fiat. You can even call it the beauty contest approach where regulators make an explicit determination to liberalize. And in some cases they do. And in most cases yet they have not or they haven't gotten to it. And so that's what we have to speed up. We have to get more spectrum subject to market reallocation. And the way to do that is to figure out ways to loosen up the underlying regulatory system. How far do you think we've gone down that road? I mean, I know it depends how, how far out the spectrum band you define the, the relevant band to be, but so how far have we gone relative to how far we should go? Right. Well, I mean, you, you know, one quick and dirty way that has been used to estimate it is to say, well, in the prime beachfront properties, uh, you know, say under six uh, gigahertz uh, that uh, we, we like to use.
used for things like mobile telecommunications, which is um, certainly the dominant sector today, and wireless, you have maybe 20% as a top-end estimate of how much is assigned to liberal licenses and can be freely turned from one use into another use without an authorization by a regulator. And that's how the iPhone gets in the market. They don't go to the FCC, mother may I, they actually go to the carriers and say, we've got a new radio. By the way, it really hogs spectrum. It interferes with everything else in the network, but we want we want your spectrum to use it. And they literally make market deals. And of course, the iPhone being the iPhone and being the iconic consumer innovation, uh, they actually got paid. The, Apple didn't have to pay a positive price. They got paid. This is their initial exclusive deal with AT&T. Exactly. Well, they're still, but they're still getting paid to make the iPhone for networks. I mean, in 2011, plus or minus, but I think that was the year Sprint finally got the iPhone and they had to commit to paying $20 billion for iPhones over the next three or four years. And that was significantly greater than the market capitalization of Sprint at the time. So the companies want the iPhone because it's so good. The iPhone has to buy Spectrum for the iPhone. The whole point is that they can buy Spectrum for the iPhone. They're not like Edwin Howard Armstrong in 1934 when he needed Spectrum for his FM radio and had to ask Mother May I ended up through a very traumatic process basically being denied by the FCC in a cruel and nasty way that uh, led him to commit suicide. One of the great inventors of the 20th century and uh, even though his invention finally liberated in the 1960s by the regulators just totally overtook the uh, AM market because of the superior high fidelity quality of FM. You couldn't get out to market. Now, with more liberal rules in the mobile space, the carriers compete against each other to make these kinds of interference decisions that are involved with every new application and every new device and every new network use. And that is just a level of complexity that is phenomenal relative to, you know, to what we were dealing with in the 1920s when it was said, oh, the market couldn't possibly handle this. Only regulators could figure out the coordination between the different broadcasters. It turns out, of course, it's just the opposite that only the market can figure out how much burden does an iPhone put on a network and how much new investment and how much different technology and how much pricing. That was a point actually that comes through that I really liked in the book that you know, usually the opposition to doing something new with Spectrum or allowing a new device or, or, or anything like that was always, well, there are a lot of technical problems that make it impossible. And you learned that uh, anytime someone said there was a technical problem, it was just an excuse to protect the existing system. Yeah, it's a great point, And maybe I didn't make it. <laughs> it's a great uh, point. You made it. Well, I would say maybe I didn't make it enough yesterday at the Cato thing because, mm-hmm. in fact, uh, Ajit Pai noted that he, he liked the uh, technical reasons as the reason to deny anything. And, and, and it is amazing if you just, if you appreciate what has been done. People show up with something new and different and ask permission because that's the system. And they are told you can't do it for technical reasons. Some of us who have worked at the FCC sort of laugh about that because it's such a cynical ploy. Technical reasons is usually launched by a lawyer who has no no understanding of what the technical reasons might be. But it's a great conversation stopper. It means it's too complicated for me to explain it to you, but it's not going to happen. Well, just look over into the wireless marketplace today. There are millions of apps that come onto your smartphones and they all interfere with each other and the devices all interfere with each other and the networks potentially interfere with each other and it gets worked out with fairly simple regulatory rules and competitive forces. It is impossible to think about that system being run top down under the old mother may I rules where the FCC says no there's going to be one setup here and we're going to define what happens in every license space in terms of the service, the technology and the business model. Your head explodes 
to even try to consider that possibility. And of course, there wouldn't be the possibility. There would be suppression of the innovation. And that's what happened under technical reasons. Mm -hmm. Go away. We can't deal with this. Under the current system, the complexity that Silicon Valley and the carriers deal with every day is orders of magnitude above above what people were, were, were told was problematic and just couldn't be dealt with in the old structure. So that is extremely powerful in terms of the progress, the social progress it's led to, you know, in the economy and in in health and social media and in, in so many other areas of society. You know, even in uh, personal security, crime rates going down as a result of uh, this innovation or Uber and Lyft, entirely new sectors of the economy that are built without even a second thought today. Nobody thinks about Uber and Lyft as wireless companies, but they're impossible without the liberalization of spectrum policy. So related to innovation, would you say that there is market demand for liberalizing, like let's say the other 80% of the 600 megahertz band? Or are innovators just deterred by a closed door at the FCC? Why don't we see kind of a rush to the FCC to say, hey, open up the rest of the 80%? At some point, the no is so strong that people aren't even trying to access that spectrum? Yeah, another great question. There is demand there. And you must have good professors, by the way, to ask a question <laughs> of that quality. The uh, just keep asking there, she doesn't get answers. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, there is demand to open up the spectrum. But, you know, we still have the 1927 Radio Act governing the process. And that creates what some have called, and I like to, to quote it, an attractive nuisance. That is to say, if you really want, as an innovator, access to radio spectrum, and the current system forecloses that, you could invest in a campaign to convince Congress, interest groups, FCC regulators, the president, whoever is in a position of power to affect this outcome, you can really lobby for liberal access that open up the market to everybody. That's a way to spend a lifetime and probably not make much money, okay? <laughs> because you're investing in a public good. The alternative with this attractive nuisance is to go and figure out a way that opens up a little bit of spectrum that can create gains that are captured by your effort to lobby the agency. And of course, that's the bias of the system. And that's, need I say, a problem. So I recently uh, at the Public Choice Society meetings uh, gave a little paper on the battle over the 5.9 gigahertz band. Now that's maybe worth about $3 billion. It's 75 megahertz. It was set aside about 20 years ago by the regulators uh, specifically for autonomous driving vehicles and other telematics that have to do with automobiles and, and uh, trucks. And certainly the automobile companies have use that spectrum, want to use that spectrum. They didn't pay for it. There wasn't an auction. There's no liberal use. This is an allocation for a specific purpose with unlicensed rules. You don't have to have a license to operate. You do have to conform to the power levels and the technology rules. Well, there are other people who would like to use that perfectly valuable spectrum. And it's right next to the 5.8 gigahertz Wi-Fi band. So some other companies have challenged the FCC allocation and the automaker's use of it, saying that they haven't made much use. And we ought to peel off, oh, maybe 45 out of the 75 megahertz and allow Wi-Fi radios that are using 5.8 next door anyway to just extend over and use more bandwidth and get better throughput and, and more, you know, more traffic on their systems. Of course, the automakers literally say people will die, literally say that will create a direct and immediate threat to human life because 
of these mission critical aspects to the vehicle telematics and informatics. Well, they're, they're making the technical argument. It's exactly the same technical <laughs> argument. We need all the spectrum to do these all these various things that we want our cars to do. And if somebody else can use that spectrum at all for technical reasons, it, none of this will work. It's exactly the same argument. You need to co-author my my next book, Scott. <laughs> well, put my name on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is from my book, and that's exactly right. So it's the old technical reasons argument. On the other hand, we don't know how valuable a shift away from the automobile industry, if you will, to the Wi-Fi sector, if you will. We don't know how valuable that, that shift is and how costly it is, what, what we give up. So how to decide? Well, of course, in my paper, I say, here, let's think about doing something like this. There's 75 megahertz. The Wi-Fi champions want 45 of it to be available for access for Wi-Fi systems and 30 to be then reserved exclusively for the auto industry. And the auto industry says, no, there's a standoff. It's been going on for years. I assume it'll go on for more. Nobody knows the answer to the question of what the net social value is. Nobody knows that answer. Why not allow the automobile industry in some kind of a consortium? They're well identified because they've been lobbying on this for a long time and they have their groups that, that come in front of the regulators to present their views. And uh, we know the car companies that are specifically involved. Let them own that band. In other words, give them a license for liberal rights over all the 75 megahertz. Now, you say, well, that's unfair. There's a windfall. Scott, my co-author, certainly knows that we, we could fix that. We could we could say that we will sell you this for, you know, and we could or we could be partners and take 50% of what happens later. And we could come to, we established the principle, now we're just quibbling over the price. That's the side issue. But I'm, as an economist here, just trying to move society forward, I'm perfectly willing to entertain the possibility. We literally give this windfall, if you will, to the auto industry. Now, I like that approach because, of course, the auto industry, the instant that they become owners. They ask themselves the question, now, what about those technical reasons? It is 75 megahertz. You know, maybe if we got to, you know, keep 20 or 30 or 40 for our applications here, or maybe there's a different configuration. Maybe, you know, So how much is it worth to us? On the other side of that, you do have companies like Google and Microsoft and, and Comcast. I've heard that they're well capitalized and might be able to afford some kind of a transaction that opened up that band. And I do want a market test. I want some revelation of demand that involves more than paying an attorney to do a keyword search on flowery language in previous FCC proceedings and use that boilerplate to tell the commission what a good idea a new reallocation is. We know that the process does not reveal much about demand in terms of that legislative and uh, regulatory tussle, but you want to get to an auction where companies have to put up or shut up, skin in the game, so to speak. And in that revelation, you will, I'm pretty certain, come to a much better optimization of that bandwidth, and you can do it much, much quicker. You can open up 5.9 for other socially valuable uses, and by the way, not just Wi-Fi, but whatever else might want to come in. Maybe satellite, maybe some other services, plain old off-the-shelf mobile networks could be in there. You can have lots of mix in that outcome, but you can't get it the way we're doing it now. Tell us about that more broadly, because you have for, I don't know, for how many years and decades have been having this argument about overlays with the FCC and, and others as a, let's say, complex to auctions. I'm ready to do it more, get Spectrum back into the market more quickly. And the incentive auction we just had was an example of not doing that. Tell people what overlays are and why that's, why you think it's superior to something like the incentive auction. Yeah, I appreciate, yeah, when you say I've been having an argument with the FCC about it, it really, it sounds so harsh. That's a productive argument, <laughs> except that they haven't listened. To be honest, they, they have listened. And let me give you a, a tidy little example. This is where I take a victory lap. But in the incentive auction, which you were part of the national broadband plan, 
China, 2009-2010, and it, it actually moved in a very important direction. And this is a key pivot in U.S. policy. I certainly talk about it in the book, where the regulator, the FCC, looks at the TV allocation table of 1952 and says, look, to deliver I Love Lucy, okay, but there's too much there now. We need to peel that off. And even though this is a public interest allocation and we have every legal authority, according to the letter of the law, to just take these licenses and reallocate them or just change the use and allow the current licensees to do something different, that actually isn't the way the system works. That's what the FCC says. We're going to have to pay the TV stations to sell their licenses back to us. They like Lucy, but they don't love Lucy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's one way to put it. So they'll, and they'll love the FCC, the broadcasters, if they get to sell the license back. And they'll cooperate. Their cooperation is being bought by the regulator. Now, I don't like to crow about it, but that's what some of us have been saying about the regulatory system for a long time. And I absolutely agree that the FCC was right. They were intelligent and they were realistic in moving society forward to say, we need to have a more market-oriented, reform process. And that led to this incentive auction, which, as you know, was a two-sided, is a two-sided auction. The bidding part took place in 2016, 2017. And on the one side, the reverse auction, TV stations said to the FCC, this is how much we will take in money to go off the air to stop broadcasting. And then on the other side, after the FCC kind of figured out where the stations would move and what spectrum would be available and how to reallocate the available spectrum, newly available, to liberal licenses that could be used for by mobile operators, it held a second, basically standard forward auction where parties lined up and bid to get these licenses could be used for mobile services. And that auction raised $20 billion. T-Mobile was the big winner, $8 billion for about 31 megahertz nationwide spectrum. That's a big chunk. T-Mobile loves it. It's going to make their network much, much better. 4G, 5G, speeds go up, service coverage, all of the above. So now I say that the great thing about that auction was that it did accept the fact there had to be incentives for all parties to cooperate. The poor thing was that it only took about less than a quarter TV band and put it out into liberal licenses. The entire TV band has been subsumed by cable, satellite, and now over the top, three generations later, are we, from I Love Lucy over the air terrestrial TV. So we have ways to get video. Ask your teenager, have you watched TV today? And she'll say, yeah, I'm watching uh, I'm watching Netflix now. And she'll be looking at her Android. Okay, that's the way video comes to people now. There's no way that you can say it's efficient to stop the process whereby consumers are voting to have Spectrum used in the 2018 way, not the 1952 way, but only a Quarter, less than a quarter of the spectrum from the TV was allowed to move this way in the incentive auction. I say have an overlay over the entire TV band, and they'd be competitive. You give out several in every market, and you allow the bidders to win the rights to use all the TV channels that aren't in use today, and they can use those immediately, and then to pay the TV channels that are there. And by the way, they're vested. The TV stations don't have any change in their rights. They can stay broadcasting television they want, but they can sell to the new overlay owner. The overlay owner has technically secondary rights to use the TV spectrum. And so the overlay, what it does is put rights in the market so that self-interested parties can negotiate and cut deals and in fact have partnerships and alliances so that they have gains from trade. They do something that's tremendously efficient for society, which is to come past the 1952 TV allocation, get spectrum where it's in the highest valued use today, and then split the gains. That's all it is. It's for the whole 
TV ban. Now, you say the FCC doesn't take, of course they take my position. They have to use overlays. They can't do what they're doing without overlays. And right now in the market, T-Mobile does not want to wait several years to 2020 to get access to all this spectrum it paid $8 billion for. And they're paying the TV stations sitting in what will be their spectrum as per the licenses they purchased. They're paying to get out sooner. And they're having a transition that's very much faster because essentially their licenses now are overlays. And so it just works quicker and cleaner and faster. There are transaction costs when you have the overlays going to the market and you have private negotiations. There are also transaction costs with the government doing this in its own structured way. And the biggest transaction cost that seems to be ignored by some is that 75% in this particular example of the incentive auction, 75% of the spectrum still is barricaded in the fortress that was put in in 1952. And so if you think really that this 23% solution of the the incentive auction is the end of it and and overlays are are rejected, that is just wrong. The FCC has had to rely on overlays in many instances. It is, in essence, an off-the-shelf FCC technology. And in things like television, where there has been an incentive auction, but there's not another one, and the policymakers are committed to one only one time, you have to go to something like overlays now to get the other 75% out of the market. So just to come back to the book for a a minute and the politics of it, you know, the broadcasters used to be a feared group in Washington. You you weren't allowed to do anything to them, and especially take their spectrum no matter how it was set up. They still have 75% of it, even after the incentive auction. What changed? Was it simply the fact that they didn't need the spectrum as much as they used to? Or was, was it something else that allowed this incentive auction to take place that wouldn't have been possible a decade ago? Yeah, I think all of the above. I mean, certainly the world has passed over the air terrestrial broadcasting by. And of course, broadcasters like Disney that owns ABC, they have very valuable programming, but they certainly do not rely on over-the-air transmissions. I mean, they, they particularly when they have something valuable like ESPN, it has right for cable and satellite and web distribution. So so th- what's happened is the market is, has passed them by. And in fact, the TV stations that are, have sold their licenses back to the FCC have all, the, all the publicly held companies have issued the same language in their public statements. They're bragging how much money they got, hundreds of millions of dollars for their sale, and it's going to help the company. And it says no material impact on revenues. <laughs> now you think about that. We've got still billions, tens of billions of dollars worth left in the spectrum value. And it's no material impact when you take it away from the current allocation and put it into something else. And, so, and, and that's because cable and satellite and over the top are the way they distribute the programs. So are those payments really um, are a good measure of deadweight loss? The payments? There's no effect on revenues of what they, the asset that they gave back. So they received money for it. Does that reflect the deadweight loss that had been inherent, uh, that had been built into that business model? I mean, that was a result yeah, of that well, business Well, that's, uh, I think it's a lower bound because I think it's got to be lower bound. Yeah, I think it is a portion of that deadweight loss. Well, yeah, that's, that's, I hadn't been thinking about it from that side. So when, when do you want to co-author? I'm, I'm happy just being your muse. <laughs> <laughs> Frightening to both of us, that's good. <laughs> And I think that just about wraps up this uh, very enlightening conversation on where we've been and where we might be going, uh, regardless of if it's more auctions or overlays. Do you want to close us out with any final thoughts or anything else you really want people to know about your book or the Spectrum process in general or anything else? Yeah, very briefly. I think that you're involved in the marketplace of ideas here at the Technology Policy Institute. And you're talking to me today and you talk to people every day about interesting ideas that might have some impact. And economics, as we've been talking, is so important. Technology is so important. But 
as, as Scott was asking me earlier, yes, there are some visionaries and there are some people who actually can move the dial. And it's hard to calibrate. It's even hard to document the, the fact that there is this change. But when you look back over, over years, you can see that, that people like Ronald Coase uh, sort of came in from the cold, was mocked and vilified by policymakers and experts in the industry for a long time, and also regulators, some regulators who had some forward-thinking ideas, and even, you know, FCC commissioners like Glenn O. Robinson in the 1970s who dared to talk about auctions and uh, were uh, set to the side as uh, a little bit off the wall for that. There have been people who have spent their time thinking through, in a serious way, uh, where we are and where we could be if we did experiment with new and better ways of doing business in the regulatory world. So I think that this debate that you people are in the middle of is an important one, and I, I certainly applaud you, and thank you very much for having me talk about my book. really appreciate your being here. You've been an important part of this debate, um, engaging with the FCC, both in the FCC and out of the FCC, and, um, and the book is fantastic. I commend it to everyone. Thanks a lot for coming, Tom. Thanks, Professor Hazlett. Thank you very much, and this is, concludes another episode of To Think Minimum. You can find us on SoundCloud, in the iTunes Store, and on Blueberry. See you soon. Bye.